So if, you've, uh, if you're here for the first time or you've not been around for a little while, we're in a new series. And it's a bit different. We're, instead of, we had a long series looking at 1 Corinthians. And we're doing something a bit different, which is to go through a book uh, written by a guy called Peter Scazzaro. It's called The Emotionally Healthy Church, although there's another version of it, which is called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, um, which some of you might have picked up as well. But we're going to be going through this. I think we've done two weeks. We've got another six weeks on this. Um, if you haven't got the book yet, I recommend it to you, commend it to you. And what we had, Chris launched the series a couple of weeks ago with a general overview about what we're talking about when it comes to emotional health. Um, we talk, and especially talked about how actually there's, there's five things which make up a person. You remember what the five things are? Anyone? Physical, spiritual, social, relational, yeah. Emotional. We've said spiritual already, I think. Physical, there we go. There's the five things. And actually, Chris, Chris reminded us that, and, and as the book reminds us, that actually as Christians we tend to focus almost exclusively on the spiritual. But actually it's important that all five parts of us are, are cared for and nourished in order for us to be people who, who can grow close to God and, 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 and be the sort of people that we want to be for Jesus. And then last week, uh, Matt launched what was the first of seven principles that we're going to look at. And that principle, can anyone remember what the principle was? Look beneath the surface. That's right. So you remember the picture of the iceberg where you've got an iceberg and 10% invisible, but then there's another 90% under, which is invisible, but it's a massive part of the iceberg. So Matt was teaching us about actually, okay, look, we're one thing on the surface, but what's underneath? What are, what are the root things in our lives that might cause problems with our emotional health? And this week, um, we're going to be looking at family. Um, and I don't know about you, but I love family gatherings. I'm from a, fam- a fairly large family. I've got two sisters and a brother and my parents and a, a large extended family. I love a family get-together. Absolutely love it. You know, you've got great fun. You've got kids running around like headless chickens. You've got lovely food, lovely drinks. Just, It's just a really blessed time. I'm always so blessed by the time of my family. But just recently, there's been a common theme occurring at these family gatherings pretty much every single time. At some point in the gathering, I will do something or say something and one of my sisters will go, oh my word, you are your dad. You are turning into your father. That was just so dad, what you did there. So there's this thing about turning into your father. It might, for me, it might be a facial expression or a laugh or a comment I make to Debbie, which is a bit cheeky, but my dad's got a habit of making cheeky comments to his wife. Um, or it might be when I do something vaguely strenuous and I let out this groan of like effort, which is exactly what my dad does. And they'll say, oh, Chris, you are just turning into your dad. And this whole thing wasn't helped recently when I downloaded an app called FaceApp. Has anyone downloaded FaceApp? Anyone heard of it? So it's an app where you take a photo of yourself, but then it sort of renders it in different ways. It can make you look old. It can make you look young. It can make you look like a woman or a man, whatever. Um... And when I uploaded my photo and I looked at the photo that made me look old, I don't know if you can see it very well, but that photo on the right, it's still me, but it's me as an old person. And those who know my dad will know that is my dad with a beard. In fact, if you skip it on once more, Neil, there is my dad and there is me next to me. Um, there's me next to me, next, me next to my dad. And for me, that was like, oh my word, <laughs> I am turning into my father. And it's weird how shocked we get at this, but actually... It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? On, on our weekend away, we looked at DNA, didn't we? And how certain characteristics and looks and things are passed down the family line and certain mannerisms and, and things like that. 
And actually, it's quite natural that we end up looking like our parents. But actually, it's the same with emotional health. And in this section, we're going to look at how the families which we've grown up in actually have a profound effect on how we act and on who we are beneath the surface. And in in the book, uh, Peter Scazzaro calls this uh, breaking the power of the past. Or if you've got the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book, he calls it looking back to move forward. And the heart is simply this. Unless we understand where we've come from, it is incredibly difficult to move forward and get to where we want to be. And that is, where do we want to be? Hopefully we want to be emotionally healthy, fruitful, dedicated followers of Jesus. And he, uh, Scazzaro, Scazzaro says this, In emotionally healthy churches, people understand how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and others. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family we have grown up in is the primary and, except in rare instances, the most powerful system that will shape who we are. And as Scazzaro has another way of summarizing that, and he says this, Do you know what? As Christians, Jesus is in your heart, but Grandpa is in your bones. It's quite a neat summary, isn't it? Actually, yes, Jesus is in our heart and he's changing us day by day, but do you know what? Our family history has a profound effect. Grandpa is in your bones. There's DNA passed down and it will have an effect on who you are. And actually, this is a thoroughly biblical principle. In the Bible, we see several examples of families where we see certain sins, certain traits, certain behaviors passed down and repeated, not just over one generation, but two, three, four generations And there's several verses where God actually promises that. He talks about the effects of sin lasting through three to four generations. In fact, he talks about the effect of blessing lasting through thousands of generations. But he talks about the effect of sin passing through three to four generations. Brilliant example of this is the family line of Abraham. Abraham through to his son Isaac, and then on to Jacob, and then through to Joseph. And very clearly, this was a family line which brought amazing blessing. Huge blessing, historically. For many, many generations. But we also see some negative traits passed on through that family line. We see some really, real emotional immaturity taking place in that story. So the first one, I think we're already on there, lying. If you look at the story of Abraham, there are two occasions where he enters a new place and he tells the people there that Sarah, his wife, is actually just his sister. Two occasions he does that. Trying to protect himself trying to he doesn't want people to uh to beat him up and get his wife off him so he says this is my sister this is my sister and he lies twice in that situation even though he was we know he's a faith-filled follower of god but he lied and then after he's had his kids we see isaac grow up and get married uh to rebecca and we see this horrendous situation of of a basically rebecca plotting and scheming uh against uh isaac to make sure that Isaac doesn't pass his family blessing on to his son Esau, but he passes it on to Jacob instead. And we see, again, lies, deception, rife in that family. And then Jacob himself, his very name, Jacob, do you know what the name Jacob means? Deceiver or supplanter. Yeah, his very name means deceiver. And of course, as I say, he was involved in that plot where he stole the blessing that was meant for his brother. You know the story of the, the stew and, and uh, Isaac's sight is failing when he wants to bless Esau and he knows Esau is a, is a lot hairier 
than uh, than Jacob. Um, but Jacob plots with his mother Rebecca, and he sticks animal skins to his arms. He makes a stew, and Isaac thinks it's 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 Esau, and he blesses Jacob instead of Esau. And then Jacob himself, as a father, had twelve sons, didn't he? And there was he clearly uh, in, the, in that family. We we see Joseph, the son, who is favoured, and his brothers. Ten of his brothers conspire to fake his death. And they fake a funeral and a wake and a time of mourning just so they can be rid of him. Again, lies and deception. They tell, ja- they tell Jacob, your son's dead. Joseph's dead. I'm really sorry. He's dead. Utter lie. And they went a long way to preserve that lie. So there's lying. You see how lying is passed down the family line? It just becomes part of what they do. The second thing we see passed down is favoritism. In each generation, there's an issue with one child being favored over others. So with Abraham, he actually favours his son Ishmael, firstly. But Sarah really doesn't, isn't too fond of Ishmael. Ishmael, Ishmael was the baby, uh, the son that Abraham had by Hagar. Sarah obviously had Isaac, and Sarah wants to see Isaac as, as the favoured one. And so there's a plot and a scheme and to, to see Isaac removed. And there's, there's clear favouritism. Both parents favour a different son. And then Isaac himself, as we've already talked about, he clearly favoured Esau. He wanted to pass his blessing on to his son Esau. But Rebecca had other ideas. She wanted the blessing to go to Jacob. Again, there's favouritism. There's issues with one child being treated differently from the other. And then, of course, we see Jacob himself having had that blessing. He has his, has his children. And Joseph is very, very clearly his favourite son. He lavishes things on. He gives him that beautiful coat, the technical dream coat, as we talk about. And there's clearly an issue with one child being completely favoured and treated unfairly against all the others. So you see that as a family, a family trait. And then the third thing we see is sibling rivalry. And again, we've kind of already covered it, but Ishmael versus Isaac. Now that was a heck of a rivalry, one that lasts through today with the Arabs and the Jews. That's a huge split. Ishmael and Isaac, that was a huge split. And then we see Esau and Jacob. Esau having had his blessing stolen from Jacob. From that day on, they were sworn enemies. These were, these were not just rivals. They were sworn enemies. The two brothers just divided in two. And then, of course, as we talked about, Joseph cut off from his brothers so much so that the brothers, you know, they declared him dead. They faked his death and tried to get rid of him. I hope this, this makes sense. God, you know, God uses this family in incredible ways. Incredible ways. They're so much of the basis of our, our biblical history and our, our family line as Christians is, is tied up in this family. And there's some wonderful men and women of God. But we can clearly trace behaviors and traits and sin patterns and what, what Skazera talks, earthquake events. Things that just change the whole course of a family. Reverberating right through the family line. To bring this up to, to modern day, a bit of a different example. Uh, about my own personal family. As I've shared before, I'm on a bit of a journey at the moment with my own mental health. Uh, I was diagnosed with uh, depression and anxiety back in November. Um, And to be honest, this book, I have to say, has helped me a heck of a lot in in going through that journey. And there's a whole heap of situation, a whole heap of factors, which probably started three to four years ago, which contributed to where I I got to. And I won't go into the whole background of it now. That's for another another time. What's all that got to do with, with looking back to move forward? Well, in... Looking at my issues, as I, as I looked beneath the surface, as it were, as I looked at where I got to, I started to look, after reading this book, at my family and what had impacted me 
before I go any further, I want to honour my family. I love them to bits. They're wonderful people. Um, my father, without doubt, is the most, probably the most, the biggest inspiration in my life as 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 a as a male. He's just taught me so much. Uh, I would never want um, to dishonour him in that sense. It's, it's you know, I've, I really, I'm truly blessed to be in the family that I'm in. But as I look at the family, I can see some things which undoubtedly contributed and repeated in my life some things that I'd seen in my family. So the first thing is actually. Problems with mental health, depression, anxiety, very much run in my family. I wasn't the first person in my family to go through a mental health issue. I've had to kind of accept that, um, you know, in the past I used to think, you know, mental health problems, that's something that weak people struggle with. That's something that other people deal with. That's something, you know, depressed people just need to cheer up. (laughs) And anxious people just need to calm down. And everything will be all right. That's why I, I, I kind of used to think like that. I'm ashamed to say. And it's only when I really started to feel those feelings of such acute anxiety, like the sky was falling in, and actual despair, like everything is terrible, and also loneliness, like no one understands what's going on here. Only then did I realize this this isn't right. This is this is a bit unusual. And then I looked around my family and. I, and I discovered actually that this is something that was a common theme within my family, and it wasn't just me. I said there's probably something genetic in there, which leaves us predisposed to that. So that was a huge thing for me, discovering that actually you know, there's something familial. The second thing, this tendency to overwork. There's actually a family history of ministry. So my my dad is a, a vicar, still is a vicar. He's uh, what is he 64 now. He's a vicar of four different churches in the Lake District, um, running hard for God. He's, as I say, a massive inspiration to me. Uh, my my grandfather before him is was also a vicar, served for goodness knows fifty years. He, you know, he was a dedicated parish priest. But actually, as I look at, at the pattern of their lives, there's a clear history of of dedicated ministry to the point of fatigue and burnout. My dad said, um, and again, I've heard him. I've heard him preach about this. He got to a point in his burnout where, at rock bottom, he actually felt God say, "Do you trust me? Do you trust me?" And he had to admit to himself, "No, <laughs> I haven't been trusting you. I've been trying to do this all on my own." And for me, I really recognised that in myself when I when I hit. A, a pit for myself, I recognize actually I've been doing this too much on my own. I've been trying to do everything. I've been trying to work and work and work and cover everything and not say no to anything. And eventually it all caught up with me. And I had this sense that if I wasn't doing this, then the whole world's going to fall apart. Everything's going to break. If I don't do this, if I don't do that, it's going to go wrong. And it was all about me. And the third thing, was this inability, again linked to what I've just said, to separate work and home. See, when you grow up in a vicarage, you're never far away from work. As a vicar, you can't switch off. People knock at your door, your phone rings, you're kind of always on call. So my dad had this sacred day off every week. Mum and dad had this day off. And I remember vividly, at some point, we had two landlines in the house. We had a, a family landline and a work landline. And at some point on every day off, that work landline would ring. And my mum would look at my dad with a killer look to say, you're not going to answer that, are you? You're not answering that phone. And my dad would be 
oh, but what if someone needs me? Like, it could be important. And quite often he would answer the phone. And there's that inability to switch off. When your office is just the other end of the house and you're literally in the shadow of your of the church building, it's very, very hard to separate the home life from the family life. And actually that had dri- dripped through into my, into my life as well, not just in terms of ministry here, but in terms of my office life, in the, in the, in the day job that I do. I couldn't switch my emails off. I had my work emails come into my phone and I would check them and check them and check them and check them. And I kind of liked the reputation that I built up for being someone who would really reliably reply to an email no matter when it came. And I'd be, I'd be sitting there and the kids would be demanding my attention and I'd be typing out an email which could have waited to the next day very easily. But I just wanted, I've got to do it, I've got to do it. I, I want to be this guy who, who can just juggle everything. And I, I stopped being able to, to separate home and work. I fell into that trap. And actually, only looking back, did I realize the damage that I'd done with that. Like family holidays, sometimes ruined, or at least days of them ruined because my head was in work, even though my body was not there. And hours lost with my kids because they wanted my attention. And I was thinking about an email or a phone call or a text message about work. And I recognized that had probably come through to me from my family background. As I say, I hope, I hope this doesn't dishonor my family, but you can see how these things just creep in. And it left me with a bit of a mess. And we'll come back to this a bit later, but I want to hit some good news <laughs> before we go any further, because you're probably sitting there thinking, flipping heck. <laughs> Tell us something nice. The whole point of this, of looking back to move forward, it's not just to help us to deal with our past, but it's to recognize the wonderful reality of our present and our future in Christ. Because the moment we accept Christ into our lives, we become part of a brand new family. A brand new family. When Jesus died for us, our sins are forgiven and we are welcomed in to a new family, the family of God. And Scazzaro likes to call this reparenting. And he points to John 3, uh, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. And this is where we get our whole notion. When people talk about being a born-again Christian, that's what they're talking about. It is a complete restart and reboot when we accept Jesus into our lives. Complete restart. We're planted into a new family. But to become emotionally healthy followers of Christ, we can't simply just change behaviors and pretend the past isn't there and hope that we become what we want to be. And again, some really helpful imagery here from, from Scazzaro. He says, picture yourself as an apple tree, but actually you really would like to bear peaches. You can be pruned, and somebody could attach peaches to your branches with wire, but apples will keep coming. If you want peaches, you have to dig up the apple tree and plant a peach tree. New roots are needed for new fruit. It's helpful, isn't it? That's where being born again comes in. Because through Christ we are born into and adopted into a new family. The family of Jesus. A family of brothers and sisters which which crosses racial, cultural, economic, genders. Every barrier there is, it crosses all of them. And we're in a brand new family tree. And that's why Jesus said when he was asked, 
where you know you told your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you, and he says, "Who are my mother and brothers? Here are my mother and brothers, all of you guys. Whoever does God's will is my mother or my my brother, my sister, or my mother. It's a new family, a brand new family." And Paul, hopefully, talks about it in Romans, Romans eight fifteen to seventeen. The spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing that that moment that we, as he says, if we share in Jesus' sufferings, if we accept that Jesus' death was for us, then at that moment, we have become God's children. And not just children, but heirs. We're going to receive what the children of God receive. And to un- properly understand, understand that metaphor of adoption, it needs to be understood in, in the context that Paul was speaking into, which was Rome and Roman adoption. And often... That would occur where most families, wealthy families in Rome would have slaves. And if that family didn't have a natural heir, if there was no children or the children had died, they would effectively adopt a slave and say, right, you're it. You're going to be our heir. And at that moment, that person who could have been a slave for generations, could have had generations of slavery in, his, in, in their lives. At that moment, they were given a completely fresh start. A new identity. You're now part of this family. You're now in our family line. And actually, any previous debt, any previous obligation, anything that had gone before in their life was wiped out, washed clean, taken away, and they took on the identity of being in that family. That's what we need to understand about adoption. When we are adopted into Jesus' family, the true family of God, everything is washed away. We're given a fresh start. The chains of the past are broken, and we're given a new identity in God. That's really important for us to grasp. Does our family history affect us and shape us, and can it even cause us to sin and make mistakes? Yeah, of course it can. But can that be overcome? Yes. Because when we become Christians, we're adopted into a brand new family, founded by a perfect living God, in whom we have complete confidence. And he forgives our sins and he births us again into a new life. Skazera says that becoming a Christian is to be birthed into a new family and a new culture. And then discipleship is the process of putting off our sinful patterns of our family of origin. Does that make sense? So when we become a Christian, we're in a new family. Your family history still exists. You're still part of the family that you're in. But as you grow through discipleship, this is what discipleship is. It's growing to move away from from what has shaped you and what has hurt you and what 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 the patterns are in your life. And it helps you to get towards being that dedicated follower of Jesus. And in our new family, we can enjoy absolute security and stability and freedom and intimacy and uh, confidence in prayer. And we know a truly perfect father. Because Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit, his presence to be in us. And through that Holy Spirit, we're able to cry, as Paul says, Abba, 
father and Abba simply means Papa or Daddy. It's not just it's not just father, it's daddy. Papa. It gives us a whole level of intimacy that we could never have had before. And Scazzaro, in one of the talks, he, he talks about the difference between the lies that can be passed on to you through your family line and then the truths that come through being in Jesus' family. These are some examples of things that you might have learnt or, or, I guess, taken on because of your family. You might have been told, don't be you, be someone else. You might have been told, you'll never amount to anything. You might have been told, don't make mistakes. There might have been a culture of be quiet and obey. There might have been a culture of don't assert for yourself, be meek and mild. There might have been a culture of don't ask for what you want. Don't feel, push the emotions down. Or don't trust, or don't be weak and don't be vulnerable. These might be some things, they might resonate one or two of them with you, that if you look at your family life, those were things that might have been true of your family. And there's hundreds more. But in the new family of God, when we're adopted into his family through Jesus' death, these are the, some of the truths. When we're part of God's family, we're taught it is good that you exist. You are lovable. You are good enough. You are a joy. You have nothing left to prove. Your needs are a delight. Ask him for them. And you are allowed to make mistakes. Can you see the difference? The difference in the truth of being in the new family of God compared to what we might have picked up from our family background. So applying this back, I guess, to my story, what I was sharing earlier, for me, understanding that there were some traits and patterns in my family really helped me to understand what I was now experiencing. And I started to realize that I was wired in such a way that some unhelpful and even self-destructive tendencies could emerge if I continued to live as Chris Butland, son of Godfrey and Leslie Butland, more than I continue to live as Chris Butland, child of God, brother of Jesus. And the more I lived like this, the more these tendencies would, would rear their head and I'd try and do things without God and I'd make mistakes. But actually, the more I live in this identity over here, the identity as, as, as an adopted child of God, that's when things could move forward. So each of the issues that I had identified on are now things which I am actively seeking discipleship on. Whether that's through counseling, whether that's through accountability, chatting with Chris and Mark, chatting with my dad, they're all things actually I've identified as, you know what, this is something in my family history, something in my DNA which is an issue for me. And to move past it, I need discipleship. I need help to get to where I want to be. And that's been uncomfortable. It's been difficult. I've had to admit some things about myself that I didn't want to admit. Um, turns out I'm not as good as I thought I was. <laughs> Shock horror. Um, but I realized that I simply couldn't move forward to be the husband, the father, the friend, the church leader, the, the worker, employee that I, I knew God wanted me to be without looking at what was behind me and addressing it. But the great news is that because I'm a member of the new family of God, I'm walking hand in hand with Jesus. And I'm growing more and more like him every day. And gradually, bit by bit, as I go through this, I'm becoming more and more like the person God has called me to be. And I'm receiving practical support and loving prayer and help from my brothers and sisters, the people around me in this new family. 
So while my sisters laugh at me because I'm turning into my earthly father, I'm actually also growing to be more like my heavenly father through this process. And I believe that is what he wants for every single one of us. And you may be sitting there thinking, that's, that's great for you, Chris. Happy for you. But my family is really messed up. And my old family is still there and I can't break it. I can't break free from it. I'm still living in a way that reflects what, what, I've, what has gone before. And that's, that is the case. Like In our new family, the past is forgiven and we can break it free. But actually, we don't get to change what has already happened. You see? The past is the past. It, what has happened has happened. And there are things that we will undoubtedly never forget. We don't de- develop amnesia when we become a Christian. But Scazzaro is really helpful in that. He talks about, actually, do you know what? We enter the new family of Jesus with broken bones and wounds and scars. They will remain. The things that have shaped us, they're still there. They're, they're still memorable. But actually, God uses these. And Scazzaro talks about us being wounded healers. So actually we can use the things that have hurt us and, and scarred us and, and blessed us as well can be used as we minister to each other in this new body, this new family of Jesus. God somehow redeems them and uses them for his glory and for our good. And you can see that in the life of Joseph. If we just, we just rewind back to Joseph, you know, he was utterly betrayed in the most hurtful way possible by his own family, his own flesh and blood. And he was forced to live abroad, having been sold into slavery and then and then written off as dead. And then even in this new land, he was falsely accused and thrown into jail because the wife of his boss was jealous and angry that he wouldn't, he wouldn't commit adultery and sleep with her. You know, this guy has some serious wounds and scars, doesn't he? All stemming back to the stuff that happened in his family, the traits of lies and betrayal and favoritism and sibling rivalry which had run through his family. He was in an absolute mess. But how did he get through it? Well, firstly, firstly, he understood and knew deep down that God is sovereign and had a plan. In fact, in Genesis 45, when he finally actually meets his brothers again, he says this, he says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Even though he knew that the whole reason he was in Egypt on the surface was because his brothers had sold him into slavery and left him for dead. But Joseph knew that God had a plan. It wasn't you who sent me here, it was God. I'm here because that's where God wants me to be. And I'm going to make a life out of it. We need to recognize that God will sometimes lead us through darkness. For our own good. And he helps us to get through it. And his, his ways and his reasons may be hidden to us in the moment. And we might be wondering, flipping it, God, what are you doing? Why am I here? What is going on? How long is this going to go on for? Well, we have to remember, like, like Joseph remembered, that God is a God who has all of history in his grip. All of time. And we are secure. And he does know what he's doing, even when it doesn't feel like it. The second thing that Joseph did was that he was honest and admitted the sadness and the loss that he was feeling. He didn't bury it. He didn't push it down. He didn't ignore it. 
he recognized, you know what, I've been really wounded by this. Again, in Genesis, there's a point where he he runs away to his bedroom and he weeps and he cries so loudly that actually they can hear it all around. The, the Egyptians hear him. He wept and he wept and he wept because he was hurt and he acknowledged it. He didn't try and bury the feeling, do the manly thing of carry on. Nothing to see here. I'm fine. He admitted it and he dealt with it with God and he said to God, God, I am broken. <laughs> this hurts. I need you. And then the third thing he did was that actually, instead of being bitter and instead of being angry and instead of being having all those ugly feelings come out, he partners with God to be a blessing. So when his brothers come back, I mean, he could have he could have had them killed. He could have sent them packing. He could have left them. At the time his brothers came back, they came to him begging for help. They didn't even know it was him. They came begging for help because there was famine in their land. And Joseph could have sent them packing and said, ha, now you want my help. Funny that. But instead of being bitter and angry, he gives it to God. And out of his relationship with God, he ensures that his brothers are blessed. And his family is blessed. Even though they'd hurt him. His wounds were incredibly deep. But he trusted God enough to choose to love and forgive his brothers. And he ultimately saw actually the entire nation was blessed. He understood his past. And he saw how it had destroyed his family. But he used it as a lesson to work with God. And set a new precedent of forgiveness and love. Instead of jealousy and forgiveness. And actually you see that come out in, the, in what he names his two sons. He has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. I don't think they're on our list for our baby names, are they dead? But, um, Manasseh means in Hebrew making forget. In other words, forgetting about what's happened before. And Ephraim means fruitful in this place. In other words, you know what? I can move on from this. I can forget it because I can see. God, you've done something here. You've made me fruitful where I am, despite the hurt of the past. So all that, are we, are we all on board with this? Are we, is it making sense? So some things to, as we finish, some, I guess some actions. The first thing, which you might want to try, is to try and do a genogram or a genogram, whatever you want to pronounce it. So you'll find in the book, because is really big on this, and it, it, some people might like it, some people might like it. Essentially, it's drawing uh, a family tree, but actually going deeper than just looking at who's related to who. Actually looking at the relationships, looking at the, the events that have shaped the family, and draw them on and saying, actually, I can see there's patterns here. So it might be a pattern of sibling rivalry, or it might be a, pa- a pattern of someone being cut off from the family, or it might be a divorce, or an adultery, or abuse in the family. But as you look at your family tree, you will undoubtedly find there are things in your family which, which do pass down and which we need to be aware of. And it's looking for those patterns. And to, I found that a really helpful thing to do. And the great, well, not the great thing, but the interesting thing about it is that it's a great leveler. Because there won't be a single person here or in the world, I can guarantee, who won't have a family tree which won't have some brokenness on it somewhere. Everyone will have brokenness somewhere in their family. And understanding that helps us to see some of the choices we've made and why we've made them. So I'd encourage you to have a go at that. It's a really, really 
enlightening thing to do and a helpful thing to do. And as you do it, then you, you start to give it to God and say, wow, God, this, this is pain. I hadn't realized it was affecting me, but I can see it now. And will you help me to deal with it? The second thing is actually, we'd love to pray with you. If you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, you know what? I can see it. I know the issues in my family. I know actually there are things in my earthly family which have made me what I am today. And actually, I'm struggling with it. I'm struggling with it. There are things that I know are negative things that are passed down that I need help with. If you're in that position today, we'd love to pray for you and to remind you the truth that you're in a new family of God. And there is a chance. You are, it is possible to move on and to, be sh- and to as, as Peter says, to look back, to move forward. We'd love to pray with you this morning. And then finally, again, if you've identified those issues and you know there are things you need to work out, get discipled. Take that difficult step of opening up to someone, whether it's a counsellor, whether it's a, a brother or sister in the church, whether it's a family member. I really encourage you, if there's something that you know, do you know what, that's an issue for me. I need help with this. I'd love to encourage you to seek that help and that that advice and that love and, that, and most importantly, that prayer. Actually, as a church, we are brothers and sisters. And we've talked about the body that actually when one person suffers, we all suffer. When one person triumphs, we all triumph. We want to walk through together in discipleship so that we can move on and we can look, we can move forward to be the followers of Jesus that we know we're called to be, to have the maximum effect on this city. But to do that, it just requires a bit of vulnerability and a bit of looking back so that we can move forward to where we want to be.